0: Hello and welcome to Rearview, the show where we get to chat to the fascinating people from the motoring universe, learning how they got to where they are today. I'm Andrew and this is episode 34. I'm delighted to be joined by Stuart Gallagher, who is editor of Evo. Welcome to Rearview, Stuart, and I'd like to start off by asking if you could explain what the editor of Evo does.
1: Well, hello. Um, What do I do? It depends who you ask. If you ask everyone in the office, probably not a lot. If you ask me... um... Uh, Evo is quite, I think, quite unique in in what we do. Um, everyone sort of mucks in and does everything. So I will, I am responsible, obviously, overall for the content and the strategy for the brand. So it's 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 no longer just a magazine. It's a website. It's a YouTube channel. It's social media. It's events. Um, so I take overall responsibility for that and work with. The direct team in my office and with the sort of the senior guys down in our London office with with planning where Evo needs to be um, currently and where it needs to be heading in the future in terms of its content to suit all those platforms and those platforms all have very different audiences as well so that's where perhaps the biggest challenge is um, but I'll also still muck in with producing content from writing news stories and Tweeting and uh, uh, web stories and, and features and, and drivers and things in the magazine. So I, I tend to do a bit of everything. Um, obviously, there's more specialist guys on the team who will focus on different areas. But yeah, I, I sort of do everything from from planning it and uh, looking after the budget, working the commercial team, um, sort of all the things you would probably expect. Sort of someone near the near the top to to sort of have to do day to day
0: well, I'm just wondering what you do after 10 o'clock in the morning now, listening to that, you know, that's got everything boxed off by nine, you know, and then, <laughs> so, that's an incredible wide variety of things that you have to actually uh, have, you know, many pies, fingers, you know, all that sort of thing. There's an awful lot, but sounds we'll explore that later on though, uh, if, that, if that's okay yeah. with you. So what I'd, I'd like to do, which is, um, it's, it's a bit cliched, but uh, find out where you first got interested in cars and um, was that from a young age and, and the, the family regale hilariously the, the tales of you pointing out what the cars were at the end of the drive and things like that.
1: Yeah, you've been reading my notes. That's exactly what i read <laughs> And, uh, yeah, Matchbox and Sky Electrics and pointing at cars out the window. And, uh, uh, yeah, and uh, it, as most people do in this industry, that's where it starts from a very young age of um, just being fascinated by anything that's a
0: car, really. Um, was that helped by anybody in the family or was it just – just- something that grabbed you
1: uh, not directly in the family um my dad had uh, sort of he he's into cars he has a passing interest but he managed to surround himself with a group of mates who were sort of what we would call today petrol heads and had um all kinds of sort of what i considered exotic things um back then because there are things like janetta's and original mini coopers and scimitar gt's and things like that which were completely different to the old sheds that we used to run around in and 14ers and away teams and things. And so to me, they're exotic. And one of them would, was, you know, was a bit of a club racer. So there was often old racing car sort of in bits whenever we went around there. And yes, yeah, so it wasn't directly family member, but, um, sort of good friends of the family that was, I was always around, um, growing up. And I think like any small child back then in the seventies and eighties, when there wasn't computer games, you sort of got the matchbox cars out and you smashed them against the skirting board. Um, and built ridiculous Galactics tracks for, for mum to trip <laughs> up and uh, scream and hollow at us to put away. So, um, yeah, I think it's quite a conventional um, sort of uh, interest, really, from certainly for everyone I've kind of worked with. We've all sort of started the same way. Some have had obviously more direct family links, but yeah, myself and my brother just have, have been into cars and, and stuff since we were a very young age.
0: No, oh, excellent. I mean, yeah, and, and we, we we can no longer think about the damage we've done to those matchbox cars. I uh, think because of the you know, it's one of those don't think of all the cars that you had because the amount of money they would be worth now if they were still in a box, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, would just be horrific. So we, we just don't you know, we can't think of that. <laughs>
1: you know, I shouldn't have snapped the bonnet off that
0: Maserati Bora I had. <laughs> <laughs> When you were when you moved through school and things, was there an idea to work something in the motoring world, or was it just uh, you were a kid in the in the corner of the back of the class who was drawing in the book or reading, furtively reading car magazines or anything like that? Was it did it did it follow through in school?
1: Yeah, there there was there was three or four of us who went through school all into cars, and we still are now. Um, yeah, and it was drawing in books. Um, Bringing in car magazines from uh, that we had at home. Normally, we all had older brothers. We were all the youngest, so we would steal off them. Um, copies of *Performance Car* and *Auto Car* and, and *Motor*, bringing those in, um, and yeah, just sort of geeking out. I suppose in 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 the back of the classroom, sort of looking at stats and looking at Ford, uh, Ford brochures and Vauxhall brochures because there was a both of those had dealerships in our high street um, in the days when car manufacturers had you know dealerships in the high street and not on the industrial estate 30 miles away um that goes <laughs> that's, uh,
0: that's so handy for everyone exactly yes yeah, <laughs> so,
1: so, so walking there and go oh my dad's interested in a in a sierra 1.6 lx can uh, kind of approach it please mister um and <laughs> i used to publish them once a quarter so uh, yeah come home and laden with those and take them into school the next day and uh, sort of point out which ones we're going to get our dads to buy um Which was uh, which I never did, of course. I never listened to us quite wisely, Um, (laughs) but uh, yeah, it's it's, it's, yeah. Growing up through school was um, yeah was very much car focused and thinking how can I get to play with cars when I'm older and have to actually get a proper job. Um, But my biggest problem was I didn't know how to fix them. I'm absolutely hopeless with spanners. So um, at one point, the thing I was going to be was a traffic cop because. <laughs> Essex Police just got a Sierra Cosworth as a traffic car. I thought, well, that's that's brilliant. Um, not realising that, sort of, twenty years time, they probably still wouldn't have that car on their uh, pursuit
0: team. But um, no, but you don't. There's no point in using logic at that point. Know, exactly. <laughs>
1: well, then they had a Sierra Cosworth and an RS two hundred. I thought, right, I'm definitely going to work for Essex <laughs> Police. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that didn't go down well at home. I think. Um, my parents had higher expectations, and I've disappointed them ever since. So um, it's an interesting sort of. Are well, you doing your homework? Yes, I'm, actually, I'm reading. Copy, I'm reading Clarkson's column in Performance Car. Uh. <laughs> you,
0: you've obviously got this. So you've just said that the idea was to get into motoring somehow. So did you manage to make as many choices as the school system will allow towards that, or was it just a case of you you took the subjects you enjoyed and then? After school, it was right. Okay, what am I going to do?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I was I'm sort of old enough to be come through a school system where the the, the choice was kind of made for you. So um, it wasn't as if you said you wanted to be a motor journalist back then. I think I just looked at you a bit funny and um, put you down a set. So um, it was done after after school. Really went at sort of college time and uh, picking the right courses there and thinking right, what? How do I get into this? What what do I need to do? Um, and I actually went off and, and did as much on, uh, I actually learned how to be a printer just as everyone went into desktop publishing. And uh, um, so I went to a printing college and in, learned how to do some desktop design and then do copywriting and sort of a bit of everything thinking, right, if I've got an element of one of these skills, I should be able to get into this car magazine trade somehow. Um, and, yeah, that's, that's the route I took. Um, I know people take very different routes, particularly today. You can do very specialist motion journalism courses. Obviously, the one up at Coventry is is the one that everyone uh, tries to get on. It's a very good course, and we've had some good guys come from come from there um, and go off and do some great things. But, uh, yeah, back when I was doing it, it was a very different route, I think, of knocking on doors and been trying to get any, you know, any experience of, of how the magazine
0: trade worked. With all the, uh, with the way that you, um, you worked your education. So you learned things like how to lay out a page and stuff like that as well. Yeah. I, uh,
1: yeah. Everything.
0: I was, I was- so, so it, you got a very good uh, grasp of the visuals of, you know, that a picture will look perfect here in this size and the text will come running this way, you know, because that's um, with websites and stuff uh, that art sometimes is a bit lost when it shouldn't be. On some sites that you go around,
1: yeah, it, it's as I, said, I mean, I, I sort of cross. I, when I sort of started, I was crossed I was in that period of when it was the old old style of typesetting and layout and, and layouts, and also the first lot of desktop publishing and stuff. So it, it's when the the writer almost, you know could actually get to see how their stuff was being used and suggest things, writing headlines and and stuff like that. Whereas beforehand, it, you just filed the copy and someone else did all, all the rest of it.
0: Um, Do you think that makes a difference to the way somebody writes, if they can see how it's laid out as opposed to a blank page and just write?
1: I, I think it depends on on the person, really. Some people are very... Uh, we're very fortunate at Ivo. You know, we always have been having some great writers who, I think, um, you give them a blank piece of paper and they can just turn out an amazing piece of copy. Um, and yes, there are perhaps others who get who like to be more involved in the story and the construction of it from sitting down with designers of right, like, how is this going to look and briefing photographers and working with photographers on shoots and making sure it looks as they want it to look so it's going to suit the copy they're going to write, whereas there's others who will just write amazing bits of copy and won't even get involved with how it looks and the photography and headlines and stuff, and, and they don't need to. Um, but that that's it's probably changing a bit more. I think most, a lot of the, the uh, people coming through now do seem to have a wider range of skills. They are more in tune with how things need to look on a page in print or how things are going to work, um, on a website or obviously on a YouTube channel. Um, they need, you know, the visuals are just as important these days as, um, as the words, sadly, I think the words are, are the most important thing, but, uh, it, it's sort of moving away from that at the moment. Um, I think it always will because you, you need to capture people's imaginations and the best way of doing that is with visuals at the
0: moment. Yeah, yeah, no, we you see lots of stats about how, uh, for example, a tweet with a picture will get X percentage more engagement or whatever yeah. the technical term is that doesn't make you want to throw up when you hear some of these terms. Uh, whatever the technical term is, you see the picture on it or a video on it, then you get so much more People click on it or look at it and stuff. So yeah, uh, I, I it does seem to be uh, something that everybody needs to, if they if they're trying to produce something, some content of some variety, they need to be able to uh, understand how important it is and what what is good for their content as well. Yes, I, think. I think. I think,
1: particularly on the digital side of things, is is too easy to people uh, to use what's given to them and just take that and rehash it and not think of actually how do I make this my own piece of content um, we, we all, we're all guilty of it in the industry I think sometimes of, um, particularly online of producing content that all looks the same we'll all, when an embargo list we'll all have the same story the same pictures
0: um, and it's down yeah, to not, what... not that that happened today with the pictures <laughs> <laughs> yes um, and but, but that is the nature of the beast as well yeah. of, of um, embargoes isn't it unfortunately there, there's for that, that particular type was because it, it was the XF sports sport yeah. break, sporting break. What was uh, it? Yeah, well, there was
1: two. There was XF, and there was the McLaren Five Hundred and Seventy Spider. Um, oh,
0: yeah, there was that as well. Yes, um,
1: and that's down to the to the individual sort of brands to work with those manufacturers and say that we need something different because if we all have the same content, the user is just um, is going to think they've seen it before and they're not going to read it and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's a big risk it's a big risk that the publishers face at the moment is how we've built these big digital audiences how do we now keep them engaged it's a horrible word but it is the one word you know how do we keep yeah, them right. how do we get them to click on our story rather than a competitor story if we've both got the same pictures and both got the same technical data to work with on on a new car so that's a challenge and it's one that manufacturers understand as well now they they realize that um just giving everyone exactly the same content doesn't work for them either because it's one of the – familiarisation means you think you've seen it all and actually you end up – no one reads anything because they think they've read it because they've seen it in a tweet or they've seen it on a Facebook post um, and if it all looks the same. It, it's uh, – it, where's incentive to click on it? What's, go, what's going to be different? And it's, it's the same as what magazines have always done is make sure how, how are we different to our competitors? And we, we do it in print. Um, and it's only recently that we've started to think about it in the a, in a digital sort of landscape as well by adding different elements to it. So it's a really interesting, exciting challenge of, of how we do that, um, because obviously digital audiences are much bigger and they've all got very different criteria of what they want to, to see and what they want to look at. Some want a quick wham, bam, thank you, ma'am hit, and others want some long-form content and more detail, so we've got to balance that. And I think that's where the skill of knowing what works and what doesn't work and what grabs people's attention is, is, is what makes, um, individuals and, and the brands they work for stand out.
0: But, but I think also it, it helps that if, if you understand what your, um, well, in this example, say just Evo is very clear to everybody at Evo, what Evo stands for. It's easier then to craft your take on, you know, these, these embargoes and stuff. And, uh, Uh, for example with our podcast you know we're we're definitely not um, well one we're nowhere near big enough to get uh, involved in these things but secondly we're not uh, the sort of place where people come for what is the very latest this second news or something like that so we don't try and go down that route because there's I mean you can you can open the internet and there's a thousand sites that where everybody's Seemingly racing to the bottom on oh, I've heard this rumor that maybe came out. No, we'll, we'll just throw out any old news, and that doesn't help anybody. Um, no, so no, I think no. understanding what you what what your organisation or your content um, stands for, I think is the key to all that. And it's and well, it's clear to me what I feel Evo stands for. Um, which is why you know I'll go to Evo for certain things and I'll look elsewhere for other things. So, yeah, um, so yeah, it, yeah, I, I understand. Exciting. That's a, that's exciting is perhaps not the word. Uh, everybody who's trying to make the content always says, <laughs> but <laughs> but it
1: is, it's, it's exactly that, isn't it? You 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 go to trusted sources for for your information on depending on what you want to want to read about or what you need to know about, don't you? And yeah. If you go to a trusted source that you think is going to give you some um, excitement and put you behind the wheel of something, and actually it's just giving you the same content as a generic news agency site, you're thinking, well, hang on a minute, what's the difference here? Why should I bother going back to my favourite car website if all it's going to do is regurgitate the same stuff that the agency is regurgitating? Um, And you'll go elsewhere and find find your fix elsewhere, and that's, that's the... That's the big challenge that we're we're facing at the moment. It's and it is exciting. It's a bit, it's intriguing because you're you're looking into people's trends and you, you're trying to second guess them. And sometimes you get it right, and sometimes you get it wrong. Um, but it's 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 a really really fascinating time at the moment in in the industry of, of having these big audiences and and, and managing them. And, and of course, they will they will sort of walk away and go somewhere else if if someone bigger and better. Um, or in their eyes comes along and, and offers the something better
0: um, and yeah, a, I think it's a case of managing expectations as well yeah yeah you, it's you know the these uh, I, I mean the part of the problem is that so much information could be found for free yeah it's uh it it's how how is that balance between creating quality stuff yet? Uh, in the you know in whatever if if in this particular format nobody's paying for it or they you know or however that is worked out in your business plan for right well this this material will come out first of all in the paid medium and then it will come out you I don't know three months down the line in the non-paid so people can we've still got it you know it is still content for the website which obviously Google loves and things like that and, and people who maybe have forgotten they've read it in the magazine get to see it there and all that sort of stuff so it's uh it is really tricky it, it just I don't envy anyone and um this uh, this was something I asked Jim Holder but I I think from my limited experience of being on the peripherals of this uh industry that anyone who runs a uh, car-related magazine and the associated uh, sites and things, possibly is clinically insane, because that seems like such a hard thing to have to do. Because of those reasons, I was saying, uh, and you know, it, it, you can go, you can open up once a week. There's bound to be a story that says, "Oh, magazines are dying," etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you know, it just seems such a hard thing to do. Why do you do it?
1: Uh, I think that you ask any of us in the in the motoring side of things, is because we love cars, and the opportunities it presents to you, uh, you won't get elsewhere unless you're you know in that one percent at the top where you can go and buy whatever you want and and you get the access. Um, so it's a mixture of you love car, we love cars, and we love producing content, whether it's telling stories. Um, being first with the news and or producing video content, um, engaging with people on social media. Which is, you know, when I first started on this, the only way you, you spoke to readers is if they, you know, got a letter out and pen and paper and, and physically wrote it to you, stuck it in an envelope and posted it. Um, to get feedback straight away on a piece of content now is is, is you know quite amazing. You think, oh, blimey they've read that and they've they've digested it and they've commented on it straight away whereas in the past you sort of waited six or eight weeks to see what anyone thought of it and when you got the sales figures back Um, but to have that be able to have that interaction now and direct access to your audience um, makes it all worthwhile because you end up talking to to, people who really get what you're doing Um, and yeah it gives you a buzz Um, when the sales figures come through on the mag you you get a buzz out of those and you always have that sort of the, the horrible feeling on a Wednesday afternoon when they, the weekly figures come through, and you sort of you see you know, <laughs> the evening. Oh, I don't want to open that one today. Um,
0: and yeah, I, I, I'm sure I must tidy my drawers again before I open this. Yeah. There's, there's something important to do.
1: <laughs> but and then you know, online you you, have, you can spend all day just sort of getting lost in Google Analytics, which is amazing. It just gives you um, such a steer on what people are interested in, what they're reading, and, and sometimes you know you've got it absolutely spot on. Anything. Great, we know what we're doing. Other times, you think, "Why is that story ranking so highly on Evo?" Um, and it, it just gives you another something else to think about, good or bad. Hmm. But it's still, it, it, there's so much going on; it, you don't really have time to sort of go mad
0: about it. I think it's, <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> there's so, so much. You're, you know? you're too you're too busy. <laughs> you haven't got time to think about
1: it. <laughs> I don't think it's. A, I think, it's less so being all too busy to, to care about. I think it's more that there's so many good things going on and so many good opportunities um, that anything that's sort of bad, you kind of just bat away and 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 can deal with quite easily and not get not get dragged into it and not let it get you down.
0: Um, so, yeah, clearly, you don't take you don't think this is uh, pressure or excessive pressure. Then no, no, not at all. No. It's, it's,
1: yeah. I, I think if I'm sure that you know there's, there's it's as so the wife will always tell me it's not a proper job um, It's <laughs> and I think if you take it too seriously you can, yeah, you can pour a huge amount of, of pressure on you but at the end of the day we're doing a job that so many other people would, would love to do and have such opportunities to do great stuff um, that you take the rough with the smooth and it's so much more smoother than it is rough these days because um, it is such a there's such a fast pace of stuff that's happening and whether it's launches, whether it's tech briefings, whether it's just, you know, a, a lot of us still get a buzz out of what well, we all do, get a buzz out of producing a magazine each every four weeks, um, you know, being in the office late and, and crafting pages, that's that's what we all want to do and be have that opportunity to do it, particularly, you know, as you said um, uh, earlier that you know everyone will tell you that magazines are dying interestingly, most people who tell you that magazines are dying are people that work in the digital um, market
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> but, yeah
1: to, to have the opportunity to to produce this content that people want to read and watch or, or listen to is, is' a huge buzz um and a huge privilege as well that's what um we all we all understand it's a huge privilege to do to do what we do um Say any any downsides to it? You sort of just take on the tune and, and get on with the next job.
0: Well, it also sounds coming just talking to you in the short time that we have here that you're a not blasé about it, but uh, b you're also not arrogant about it either. You you um because for for people on the outside, it does look one of the best jobs in the world. If you're interested in cars, it it just looks fantastic. You get to go and. Speak to brilliant people, go to amazing places, drive fantastic cars on wonderful roads or tracks. It does seem And it, what's come across to me, and it's very clear, is that you don't take that for granted. You're not. You're not blasé in this. Well, oh well, I've got to go and drive yet another McLaren or anything like that. Uh, and um, you're not. Uh, you, you certainly do not come across as someone who's going. Well, of course, I deserve all this. Um, even though you've worked hard to get to the position you're in um it, it, it that doesn't come across at all
1: no i, don't, I think if you spoke to anyone that anyone who was was like that in this industry would wouldn't last very long because it's it's a very close-knit kind of uh, community almost where we all know that, that what we're doing there are so many other people who would do it for for nothing and you know would would. Bite your arm off to to have that opportunity to to drive the cars we drive and to speak to people we speak to and and have the access that we have we have. Um, yes, it's, it's a job and it's a business and it, it has to make money. You know, for for our publishers, Dennis, we have to we you know we have to make money. You have to be a viable business. But mm. God, it's a great way of doing it.
0: Um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> you're not down to
1: mine or anything like that. <laughs> the day you start being blasé and arrogant about it is the, is probably the. Good day to sort of hand you notice in and go and do something else because uh, the reader will notice as well. You come across as well, oh, look at me, I'm doing this and you're not. They're, you know, what's in it for them? You know, they don't want their noses rubbed in it. I, I wouldn't want my nose rubbed in it if um, you know if it was in any other. You know if you're reading a, a, a cricket reporter as I do, watching a, a test match, if he rubs your nose in it in every report he writes, saying that he's there and you're not, you'd soon stop reading him.
0: Um, yeah, yeah. You, but you, after today, don't mention the cricket. Yeah, don't do. won't mention the cricket. Um, <laughs> <we're kicking off>. <laughs> <laughs> well, just think about the last game when we beat Australia. That's, <laughs> that was the good. T- they were the good times. was <laughs> not um, But yeah,
1: it's, it's, it's if you're watching any anything that 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 is your hobby, if you're watching, reading, or listening to a professional, and they sort of rub your nose in it and are arrogant about it, you find someone else to listen to or read, don't you? And that's the same for us. We're on a smaller scale than than big sports and things like that. But um, we always have to remember that the reader is is our audience. They are our customers. And if we we, um, wind them up or rub them up the wrong way, they're going to walk away, and that's bad for business and bad for our careers. And then the knock-on effect is you don't get these opportunities that that we get offered. So, yeah, you you can't be arrogant and blase in this business because it could all stop one day mm. and you're
0: thinking oh what have I done yeah yeah absolutely okay so if we wind back a bit you're you're doing um print design uh, you're learning all that craft
1: yeah
0: uh, what was what was the first job you had following um that?
1: first job I had proper job was mm. on a magazine
0: called I presume I presume sorry I presume you did uh, some um work experience whilst that was going on and
1: uh yeah I had uh, um uh Work experience with a um, a small uh, automotive agency uh, that dealt with Ford looked after some of Ford's motorsport stuff, um, and they were, they were local to us, and they were someone I knew uh, or the family knew, family friend, and just sort of, yeah, through the summer work, but then we did some touring car stuff and some.
0: Oh, well, that or- that sounds like that was dreadful for you.
1: Uh so yeah, stuff in press packs, uh, printing, photocopying lots of press packs and put them in envelopes. In the good old days before there was emails and USB sticks and media sites, um, printing off Mailchimp. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was. Uh, oh, I can't, It was rally GB for one year when it was we had to print off. I think it was 150 press packs in English, Italian, Spanish, French, German.
0: Um, oh, don't want to get any of those mixed up.
1: And then stick them all, stuff them all into the folders, and then put them all into the envelopes, and that was send them out pre-event, and then do them all for when everyone turned up on the event. So yeah, just sort of dog's body jobs doing that because um, it was with cars basically. And there was, yeah, yeah. And, uh, But then I had to yeah left college and I had to get a proper job. So I um, just applied for the first job I saw when the Guardian used to have a media section and. Pages and upon pages of jobs. So um, I saw a job advertising magazine called Performance Ford, and I thought, oh, that's the only car magazine job being advertised this week. I'll apply for it. Um, and got it, and that was my first job straight out of college. Working so, on what
0: were you doing there then?
1: That was uh, that was the grand title of assistant editor, which I think was a, probably a Bit too grand for someone who's just come out of college and has absolutely no experience.
0: uh, I don't suppose they could make they could put tea maker down.
1: It it was a very small team, so there was the editor and then there was me. So technically, I was (laughs) his assistant, Um, and yeah, that was just starting at the bottom on a small one make magazine. So, um, writing news stories and product pages and going out and interviewing owners of cars and. Everything that get, that you see in a small one mate magazine, really. You know, there was only two of us. There was no freelance budget, so we wrote everything.
0: Um, and that was so that so, was a, that was a crash course then in yeah, straight getting in. getting stuff together to a deadline because uh, there's only two of you. Um, so so there's a, there's a crash course in working to a deadline, uh, hitting particular targets that the depending on what the article was or item was um that that must have been maybe perhaps it wasn't at the time but that must have been fun from a a learning point of view
1: oh it was great because it's it's you'll think wow this is it you are straight in at the deep end no sort of uh, cotton wall around you and, oh you just need to do that and off you go no it was right this is what we've got to do we've got one designer um who sits over there and also works on two other magazines so uh, let's get on with it and yeah it was a great a, a great way to start i think um in at the deep end and just we just got on with it um it was great fun editor left after six months so obviously there's something i said to him he didn't like um <laughs> but yeah it was it was fantastic because you, you being small publishers um there wasn't a resource so you did absolutely everything and it was a great great learning curve of, of how magazines need to come together having sort of uh touch on it at, at college and and only seeing bits of it to then suddenly come in and go right. You've got to, this is how everything works, and you need to get on with it and do it. It was yeah, it was fantastic, and, um, and that was what really hooked me into into magazines and, and loving the craft of just putting them together. Um, because I was involved in everything from helping out on the cover to inputting the classifieds, so you sort of you end up taking pride in everything, and it was it was really good. It was a really good learning curve, a bit steep um got me used to late nights on press day but uh
0: it's it's great <laughs> but but from that you you have got an immediate understanding and appreciation of, of every step so at no point you know as your career goes on at no point can someone try and pull the wool over your eyes and then oh this this particular aspect is, is proving a bit tricky you go well you just do this this and this don't you something you know along those lines you know because you've been there and you've done it you, you've eaten slept it you, there there's no hiding for anyone if, if anyone was trying to hide no, so I mean, to say. I I,
1: uh, most of my early career was with, with small publishers and you don't have you, you have nowhere to hide you, you do everything um, and I went to what's now called bow they were called emap after that and we were a big team and it was a bit that was a bit of a culture shock because there was elements that i just didn't have to get involved with at all and it was a bit i found it a bit strange at first of having to take a step back from certain bits certain aspects because i had such a big team to deal with it and you think oh i'm not involved in that anymore and it was well, it, it didn't take the fun out of it um because there was so much other stuff going on and that i was responsible for and, and getting involved with but I think if you love magazines, you do want to be part of the whole process because it's it, it's a great thing. You know, to think you produce something and it goes off to the printers and you sit there anxiously for a week for it to come back, hoping hoping it looks as good as you you thought it was going to look. And and if if a little bit of those processes taken away from you, you do feel not disconnected from it, but you think, oh, I didn't get involved with that. Perhaps we could have done it better. So
0: small publishing, but but it's also one of those jobs where you can go. To somebody, open a page and go. I did that. Look, I did that, and then, you know there is physical evidence of stuff you've done, which yes. uh, which must be fun.
1: That, that's that's the thrill. I think of anyone who enjoys putting magazines together. That is the thrill when it when it comes back into the office. You open the box and you think, God, we did that. We put that together. <laughs> all those late, late nights and all that cake was worth it. Look at it.
0: Um, <laughs> cracky that looks good. Who did that? Oh, it was us. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: And, and and you you feel proud. You you stick it on the shelf in the office next to sort of your colleagues' magazines and stuff. You think, yeah, that, that's a cracking one. And, and you don't do, you don't do it for for the pats on the back and people to say, well, that you've done a done a good job. You you, you do it because you want to. And and those mm. are added bonuses when someone hands over their money in WH Smiths or Tesco's or wherever they buy it from. That's that's an even greater satisfaction that someone's prepared to, to pay for it and we're in you know forever grateful for that and uh, you know that, that's that's the biggest thrill is when it's it's the worst day and it's the best day when the sales figures come through <laughs> yeah great they still like it and when you know when the subscriber numbers keep going up you think do hey, you're doing the right thing um, yeah but, but bizarrely you don't live and live and die by those publishers probably do my publisher probably does but uh, for those of us creating the content, it's the fact that we get to produce
0: this wonderful product every four weeks. Mm. So, how long were you at uh, Performance Ford?
1: Um, I was there for just over a year, went to Max Power for
0: nine months. Oh, uh, the mighty, Max Power. I remember the mighty that. Max
1: Power. Another job that I went to, the editor gave me a job and then uh, she left within three months, I think. Um, so, it's clearly something I was doing early in my career. Um, <laughs> But yeah, that was just an opportunity. I thought I need to go. You know, I was going to work for a big magazine, and it was the biggest magazine at the time, um, mm. selling more copies than Top Gear. And it was with a big publisher, EMAT. Um But actually, it's one of the, it, it, at the time. It, it kind of confirmed to me that I didn't want to work for a big publisher. Um, I I missed that um, uh, sort of. Rolling your sleeves up and getting involved in everything aspect
0: of because the because the team was just too big
1: it was it was you know, huge it was it's we're probably as big as our team is now at Evo plus everything else on, on in terms of commercial side and things and you just sort of feel you feel more of a cog and um, and just you know going going through the motions and um, sort of less involved really and mm. I mean, it was a great place to be and great great experience for a short period of time but. Um, uh, I don't think I would have, I would have stayed much longer than I did had EMAP um, not decided to close Performance Car, which is obviously where Evo came from. And I was fortunate enough to um, know the guys on Performance Car. And when so when that closed and they started talking about doing something else, um, they approached me to come and be part of their launch team. So I was only at Mass Power for for nine months and then went off with Dickie and John Barker and Harry to go and launch Evo which was a fantastic opportunity and uh, you know sort of still a pinch me moment really I think if um, if I hadn't done that I don't know what I would be doing now I don't think whether I'd still be doing this job probably not I think I would have probably sort of moved away from magazines after a while if I'd I'd stayed at Max Power for for any length of time but uh, yeah, Evo was launching. Evo
0: was um, a fantastic opportunity and, a, and great. That must, have, that must have been great to be at the birth of something like that. Oh, I mean, yeah. at the time you wouldn't know what it was going to, you know, turn oh. into or anything. But but to just to be at the start of something fresh, yeah, oh, it was. was it was, must be really exciting.
1: It was brilliant. You know, it was um, being with really talented and experienced um, guys. I, you know, John and Dickie, I looked up to. You know, they were. They were performance car when I was growing up. I read their words, and now I, they're, now they're asking me for sort of um, to do stuff for them and advice of what we should put in the magazine, how we should craft it, what we, what we're going to call it, um, what content we're we going to do, how we're we going to be different to Top Gear and Car at the time, and who we're we going to use to photograph, it, who we're we going to use to write these stories. And but yeah, it was it was a fantastic opportunity, a great time as well, great fun, um, huge challenges. Um, being a small publisher no one heard of um, and not having the big muscle of a a big established publishing house behind you it was it was a lot of hard work but boy was it worth it and it was um, it was great when that first issue came out and we went went and launched it that was um, that was fantastic that made it all the hard work um, beforehand well worth it and then subsequently afterwards as well it actually got harder the, the day the first magazines published it got harder from there but uh, it was all good hard work mm. Harry might not agree he might have had a few sleepless nights with, with the band so <laughs> but, um, <laughs> for us on the editorial side spending the money it was great fun um, <laughs>
0: yes <laughs> I can imagine so over this time from, from Performance Ford and moving through the, the various couple of magazines after do you think your writing changed?
1: Um, hopefully it's got better. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think because yes. you have to write for. Um, you know, we I say it to the you know all our new starters when they they come in and it's and everyone will say the same is when you first start you just get the facts down and you know, tell people you know tell people what you need to tell them and after the time your your own style and your own voice will come. Don't try and force it and um I'm probably still am no, yeah you know, I'm still everything I write is I like it has to be better than the last piece you wrote um and you're always your your, your biggest critic as well so um yeah hopefully it, it, I think with age as well with experience you, you sort of your style will change anyway and you' you'll have certain things that you you were perhaps focused on in the story differently to to a colleague which I think is good and that why well, is essential for for any magazine or website because if you have clones of each other everyone just writing in the same style um it gets very boring and people soon switch off and go elsewhere so Mm -hmm. um, yeah the writing side of things is always being uh, after Eva I sort of went into being being an editor after that and you do less writing as an editor than you do in any other role on the magazine so the the chances you do have to write you think oh. I often get to do this, on the touchy, um, I need to actually want to make sure this is great and uh, the best piece of work I can do because you don't know when the next next piece is going to come along.
0: Yeah, and you don't want people pointing your fingers either. going, cool. He edits me. Hang on.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, I think
0: because it's Britain after all, so we, we, we'll be happy to give insults. I would imagine in the in the uh, offices.
1: <laughs> the, 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 yeah, the book. Well, I say you're all your, your own. Biggest critic. Actually, yeah, someone in the office will be your biggest critic, and they'll let know if you've done it wrong. Which is great. You know, it's that British sort of thing of um, yeah, it was good, but you could have done better. You think, oh, okay, thanks. And uh, I mean, you're <laughs> yes. always learning. You know, from every issue we do and every web story we, we write. Um, once it's published and gone, we think, oh, we could have done that better. So, you know, whether it's me writing a story or a first drive or my head speak at the beginning of the magazine or a caption or something you always want to write it has to be um, the best you can do and but you always know you actually could have done that better but um, there's always a deadline unfortunately and so yeah just, I mean, so you just make sure next time you learn from what you didn't like last time um, it's not so much you're not making mistakes and errors you're just thinking oh if I just said that that
0: would read a bit better is that you know um yeah, and and if you if you uh, dwell too much on perfection, you would just won't get anything out anyway.
1: No, and you can end up rewriting it and rewriting it, and then actually you lose the whole um, whole sort of uh, strain of, of thought that you had, and then it, it doesn't flow because you keep going back to it at different times. Um, yeah, a colleague is he's very much sort of of the opinion you only you you write your best best piece once, and so once you've written it. And, and you've gone through it a couple of times of, of just you know, getting out some of the errors and stuff. Um, that's yeah, that's it. Submit it. Don't keep going back to it because it, it just becomes disjointed. And sometimes you can see it with um, when people submit copy. You know they, they've not written it in one sitting, which is is a luxury for, for some. You know, if you don't have the time, uh, mm. that's you know, actually biggest worry. Is that if you've got to, you've only got sort of half hour one day and. a an hour the following day to to write something, you'd much rather sit down and just write it all in one hit and
0: uh, not have to worry. Well, you'll maintain a flow then, won't you? And you'll be in the the same frame of mind for that entire piece then, I would imagine. Yeah, but what normally happens
1: is you'll write it and you'll have to stop and go somewhere and you'll come back to it the next day or um, a couple of hours later. And what you'll end up doing is just rewriting what you've written in the first place. Yeah. Um, so that, that's. It could be frustrating, or sometimes think, oh, I'm glad I, I rewrote that, because it's much better this time around.
0: Um, mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, how long were you at uh, the start of Evo? Um,
1: I was there for the first 21 issues. TV, wow. TVR Tuscan was the last issue I did when we first wrote the TVR Tuscan. Um, so, that was the last one. I went up to the factory to pick that up. And. Um, brought it down, Go to Dickie and John to go and test at Millbrook. And then I, um, I think it was second or third to last day, um, left and went off to, um, actually go back to the publishers that I'd worked at before to go and edit their BMW magazine. So, um, it was, a uh, sort of a, uh, it, was, it wasn't a, uh, on board of working for Evo and, um, you know, don't want to do this anymore. Is a sort of an opportunity, sort of career-minded, really, of, of mm. um, having the opportunity to be my own editor. on a, It was a small magazine, but it was going back to having you know sort of um, control over everything and uh, sort of work, being able to sort of direct the strategy a bit more. So it was just a, an opportunity to to get more experience, really. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, well that was BMW Car, and they wanted it to be. They'd had an editor there who'd been there for a long time. So they wanted a bit of a relaunch as well. Um, so I undertook that. I was only there for for twelve months um, to do that, and went off and did a, se- a sort of sk- did the motorsport uh, thing and got that itch scratched. And uh, went off and did a season of uh, historic Formula One of on the uh, event side, just running the events of a FI oh, okay. championship. Completely different from publishing, and I've been doing magazines then for. Probably five or six years, and I just thought, actually, try something else. So um, it was at, it was back with the agency I'd worked with when I was doing work experience and uh, summer jobs and stuff um, before I got mm-hmm. this job performance Ford. They had the, they got the contract to run the FIA um, thoroughbred Grand Prix Championship, which was. F1 cars up to
0: seventy six, I think it was from memory. So is that like the thing that we see uh, at Monte Carlo when they do their historic?
1: Yeah. So we we support. So the um, Monte Carlo stuff is, I think, is up to this. it's up to sixty three or sixty four. Um, so this was uh, Williams FW07s and the six wheel Tyrrell. Um, okay. Yeah. And the ground effect lotuses and things like that. So we supported. Um, the Master Series and Old Time Grand Prix, and we were on the support package at Silverstone for the F1 that year, um, which was great. It was just a completely, completely different. Um, no experience of running these events and being <laughs> ground. But it was, you sort of learn on your
0: feet. But yet again, let's go in at the deep end. Exactly. exactly.
1: <laughs> and, and, yeah, spend a season with, uh, um, in the presence of those cars and the guys who, who run them and, and, race them and stuff for great characters as well so you just learn so much and uh you know get exposed to such sort of fascinated insight into this world of uh, historic motorsport and it's when historic sort of classic motorsport was still um in its infancy so um it's still quite sort of clubby and pally which it is now but it wasn't on the scale of, of it is as it is now so um it was a lot. You know, paddocks and race meetings were a lot quieter, so you sort of um, all chipped in together and uh, helped each other, and uh, all the different series, and and went to the same events in the evening and sort of all socialised together and stuff. So it was um, it was a great year, great season, and um, you, know, you sort of go into Catalina and Monza and. Um, Most in Czech Republic,
0: and oh, it sounds like hell on earth. Really? ring, it was great fun. It
1: was great. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I had to drive around in, probably didn't agree. But um, <laughs> I don't think you can get from Calais to Barcelona now in nine hours. But um, you could back then, it was good fun, <laughs> Your Honour. <laughs> you
0: did that for a year, did, did you? did that for
1: a year, and then uh, back to magazines back, um, to go and launch a. Uh, Porsche magazine, GT Porsche, um, which I was at for, which I launched that, and then I was there for thirteen years, I think it was, which was probably ten years too many. Um, but <laughs> from, from whose work,
0: point of view? <laughs>
1: when you work with, with a with a manufacturer such as as Porsche, it's very hard to sort of pull yourself away because you know they went particularly through that period. They went through such a uh, such a change of uh, of company of who they were and their philosophy. So we saw everything from well, when I start when we started the magazine. There was the 996 and the Boxster were the only two cars um, that Porsche made. And of course, when I left, they had everything from a McCann had just been launched, so they had everything from Boxster, Cayman, McCann, 911, Panamera, KN, um, Carrera GT had been gone, 918 was was on its way. Um, so it was a great time because they, they, it was a, a time when they were just evolving and, and sort of reinvent not reinvent themselves but changing so much there was so much to do it
0: was um you it was adapting to the modern to, to now really yeah it seems i mean because that, that's something that um can sometimes get a bit tedious on social media or if you hear someone go, oh well they're Porsche they're meant to sports cars why did they do the dot 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 and you think well They do the dot, dot, dot so that you can have a 911, or you can have a Cayman GT, or you can have that ridiculous 911 GT2 RS, whatever it was that was just launched at E3. You know, you sort of think, we wouldn't get those unless they sold bucket loads of SUVs. (laughs) And
1: and people will say, oh, that's not the case. They just, but it, it generally was, you know, they were... Before Vida King came in, they were absolutely on their knees. And without him deciding, right, this is what we're going to do. We need to have common components across the sports cars, and we need to look beyond sports cars because that's not where the car market's going. And bold no
0: decision. And how did you feel when you first heard that, though? Um, was it a surprise, or was it?
1: It was a surprise that they went in so. So soon and so early, because I think at the time Mercedes had the ML obviously, and the X5 had, had been around for a couple of years. So, for a company such as Porsche, who you know, only built sports cars, didn't even have saloon cars or anything else in their portfolio, to go right, we're now going to produce an SUV, an ugly one at that. And
0: yeah, it wasn't a look of what And
1: uh, I think that was the shock is like, whoa, hang on, where's, where's this come from? It's come come from nowhere but I think that he, it, it comes back to a lot of people loathe him but I think King without him, Porsche wouldn't be around today and wouldn't be doing the things they're doing doing now because of the success that he put in place um, ironically you know, he took the company over when it was pretty much on its knees and he left it pretty much on its knees and on the verge of a horrible financial mess which they've, they've sort of unravelled themselves from now but mm. um, without him yeah, he's, he he. uh yeah, the company wouldn't be there. I don't. Not the company that we know, and it certainly wouldn't be owned. Okay, it's it's, it's now been absorbed into the VW group in a very complicated way. Um, yes. <laughs> good luck unraveling that one. <laughs> Mercedes were were knocking on the door before Vidiqin came along, and I'm not sure what they would have they would have made of Porsche and what they would have allowed them to do. Um, but you know, I'm watching tonight qualifying of of Le Mans with. With two N and P one cars that should, you know, have got the possibility to win again, and mm. without things like KN and without that raising the brand profile and without that giving it the the success to do, they they probably still wouldn't be running at the front. They've always been at the Mon running around with 911s and things, which have been great. But everyone wants wants to see Porsche succeeding. They want to see them at the front leading the field, which they've done successfully for. But since they've come back in uh, 2014, so and, and all that does go back to when the success started, you know, nine, 996 and Boxster were, were huge successes for them. Um, and Cayenne mm. obviously just accelerated that um, even further. And McCann is doing that again now. Panamera, we need to... is is successful as well and, and perhaps in Europe we look at it in, in UK we don't see many on the road and it's not that successful but you look at how successful it is around the world and that's that's what Porsche is now it's a global company as all these car yeah. manufacturers are they are they are global so we sometimes look at a model and think why are they doing that you know six series, new six series GT today I think the universal response from anyone in the in the UK is what's the point why bother and I think it's one of the biggest selling BMWs in China um yeah yeah so
0: i just wish they'd make it better looking yeah Um, it's (laughs) that's my problem with it i don't mind it being them doing a hatchback i I can totally see this i own a nine a saab 93 uh from 2001 so i like um sort of a fastbacky thing i'd love that sort of thing because it's got a huge boot and it, it swallows all my rubbish so i totally get doing that but just please make it look better that's all masking. Just make it look nicer.
1: I think that's where um, the, the biggest, uh, the biggest thing we struggle on in the UK is that we're no longer a. We're a big market. We're still a hugely important market, but um, for some models, we're not. The manufacturers don't need. You know, they don't need to sell six, you know, five or six series GTS in the UK. Mm. Um, its core market is the other side of the world. So as long as they like it. We can. We're not
0: trend setting. We can. We can win. In a, in a lot of for a lot of models, are but, we?
1: But then it allows them to do M3s, M4s, M2s. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So, seeing the odd six series GT on the road, I think is a fair payoff for for having those cars, and that and that's the same for for all manufacturers. Um, you know, they are you know, the ones that are succeeding and that's successful, and and people are, are buying the products, and they're they're able to do motorsport off the back of it or or whatever or, or build hypercars or niche cars is because they are they built. they have a global product range and i think sometimes in the uk we get a bit we're guilty of, of being a bit too focused on our own market and not understanding what a manufacturer's global plan is and, and why they're mm. doing something we're you know we're a bit quick sometimes to dismiss dismiss a new model thinking well that's not going to sell in the uk why are you bothered doing it and it's like well we don't really care if it sells in the uk because we need to sell it in china middle east america south america and the fact that in one of those markets it's right hand drive that means we can bring it to the uk and if we only sell a small percentage it doesn't matter but we might as we'd rather offer it than not offer it
0: Mm. yeah 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 sometimes we have to remember we're not the center of the universe yes quite (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay so uh 13 years at gt porsche yes uh which uh, was an excellent magazine by the way uh i did because i i it's well you were in charge of that that i came onto twitter and um when i i first came across you stroke started stalking you um on twitter <laughs> so uh I, I just wanted to say that I've, i thoroughly enjoyed uh reading gt porsche oh,
1: thank by you. the way yeah thank it was good fun was. putting together i mean it, as i said those Everyone said, well, how can you fill a, ma- a magazine each month with Porsche stuff? and stuff? Well, there, there's quite a lot to talk about, and uh, everything they do is pretty good. So, um, yeah, it was good fun putting that together. It was good fun. What did you move on to after? Uh, that? Was From there, I then went back to Evo as managing editor, uh, Nick Trott. Kindly gave me a job. But Nick and I had worked as... We'd worked together on Max Power. I gave him his job as a staff writer on Max Power.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So we'd known each other. It was quite quite interesting sort of him then giving me a job on uh, on Evo, which I'm certainly grateful for because it's... Uh, um, well, we we'll would be here now. But that was, yeah, to go back to Evo after all those years. And obviously it had been sold and owned by Dennis, but it was really refreshing to come back and see actually it, everything could change, but nothing could change, if that makes sense. It was still... Despite all the big business behind it, Evo was still the, the the focal point, and it was still Evo as I kind of remembered leaving it. Really, it still had that the sense. the identity was the still the identity there. was there. It had the passion, the the team that that are there putting it together were the sort of people, the same kind of people that were there when I when I left, and we always talked about who would we want to come and do stuff for us. Um, so it was, re- it was really refreshing to see because I haven't seen magazines in the past sort of be swallowed up by big big publishers and they just lose all their identity and, and focus and just become these sort of commercial juggernauts. It was really refreshing to see um, Evo still, as I remembered it, um, which is a credit to, to Nick and Harry before him um, and all the, the, the guys that had kept it going, really, and 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 people at Dennis who, who haven't tinkered with it, have, have let them get on with it and let me get on with it now as well. They they really understand what Evo's about rather than trying to force it in a direction that, that maybe suits them. But if it doesn't suit the reader, it's it's no point doing it, really. At the end of the day, any media brand, whether it's a website or a magazine, is there to, to please the reader, not to please the accountants because uh, the accountants don't pay for it. They just look at the money coming in and they need readers to do that.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is the end of part one of my chat with Stuart. Part 2 will be out next week where I continue my fascinating chat with him. Thanks once again to Stuart for coming on Rearview and chatting to me. Hopefully you found our conversation as wonderful as I have. And if you want to suggest someone I should ask to come on this show, please do get in touch if you use the hashtag RearviewPod. We'll be guaranteed to see it here in Motoring Podcast Towers. To get in touch with me directly, search for Crack Windscreen on Twitter. And if you'd like to keep up to date with motoring news and opinions and car reviews, try out the sister show, which is The Motoring Podcast. Remember, you can support the Motoring Podcast in a couple of ways, which are available at themotoringpodcast.com forward slash support. I would also really appreciate it if you could tell others about the show. I want as many people as possible to hear the stories of the great people I get to come on this show. So until next time, that was Stuart Gallagher. I've been Andrew Clues and safe motoring.